After a dozen or so patients, the psych nurse called out to me. Lee, the results are back on psych number two. You need to see this. Now, when an experienced nurse tells you that you need to see a lab result, that's never a good thing. That's from Dr. Lee Milligan recounting his time as an ER doc. We'll dig into it more after the break. He's since become the chief information officer for Asante, a three-hospital health system serving Southern Oregon. On today's episode, we're looking at the relationship between health IT, the patients they serve, and how we engage and interact. Consumer experiences, major disruptors in AI tech are shaping healthcare for years to come. On Hello Healthcare, we dive deep on these issues with leaders who are driving change. I'm Chris Hemphill, VP of Applied AI at Actium Health, and we hope that these stories will help you to create or demand a better future in healthcare. Hello, healthcare. To begin our exploration of IT and healthcare, let's go back to Dr. Lee Milligan's story. When we left, we'd just heard an experienced nurse give some bad news about a patient's lab results. I rapidly made my way to one of the many computer terminals set up in the emergency department. After typing my username and password, I quickly saw my patient list. Selecting Mary, I navigated to lab results. The majority of her labs looked to be within normal limits. The aspirin level came back as less than 10, which is normal. The Tylenol level, however, came back as pending. In the world of medicine, when a lab test comes back as a pending, this usually indicates that the lab value is so abnormal that the lab staff needed to rerun the test. I sank a bit when I saw the word pending. My mind went back to every other test result that I had seen that resulted as pending. All of them spelled badness. My head redirected to my time with Mary. She already told me that she had consumed Tylenol in large quantities. My gut told me that she was not lying. Lab result or not, I needed to get the antidote on board as soon as I could. In health tech, we fixate on EMR versions, interoperability, and data feeds so much that we lose sight of what we're aiming at. The end game isn't the install or a successful training. It's stories like the one you just heard enabling people to save lives. In the show notes, you can find the full story. Dr. Lee filled it with the suspense and heartache of the moment. It's more real than an episode of House, and you get to see some inspiration behind a career of enabling healthcare technology. So how are healthcare leaders like Dr. Lee balancing patient needs, physician needs, and health system strategies? Let's hear from him. I would say it's a fantastic time to be at the intersection of healthcare and IT. It is so exciting where we're at right now. Between the advent of AI, the uh, ubiquitous nature of EHRs, the 21st Century Cures Act, which although it causes me heartburn philosophically, I'm fully supportive of. So many great things are happening right now in the industry. It is such a, it's almost a magical time to be in the industry right now. At the time we're recording this, he's right. Many innovations are getting the spotlight for their impact on patient lives and experiences. I think at its core, the the function of IT within a health system is really about achieving the strategic goals of the operational leadership. And historically, that was really around just supporting them in what they're doing when we had a pre-EHR state. But now that the EHR is nearly ubiquitous and technology is integrated into nearly everything we do operationally, 
with mobility and digital platforms and everything else we're doing today, I think that IT has to be that partner with operations in order to accomplish the goal. So at the end of the day, it's really about identifying the operational goals and then having IT put in place all the pieces so that operationally they can be achieved. Dr. Lee mentioned operational goals, but what does that mean for the customers of a health system? The way I'd approach it is first, I want to define customer. From an IT perspective, my customers include the patients, of course, but really they include the people using the technology within the system. Because if I can enable them to use that technology effectively, then they can better care for the patient when it's all said and done. I get asked frequently, doesn't the patient come first? Yes, they do, but it's more nuanced than that. If we treat the the docs and the nurses and the advanced practice providers and everybody else who's using our technology really well, they're better positioned to care for that patient moving forward. And I can tell you, as somebody who used the technology years ago, I can tell you that when you're frustrated with what you're using, it is hard for that not to be translated to your experience with the patient. And so for our team, what I keep telling them is focus on the customer to have their experience be great so that the patient can have great care. Great points. Maybe the term customer is more complex than the Merriam-Webster version, which is a buyer of a good or service. The customer isn't just the patient, it's everyone whose experience impacts the patient experience. That introduces many moving parts to enable great care and great experiences. How do we know we're doing this well? Is there some kind of report card for great IT leadership? I think in the old days, uh, a CIO could could get away with simply managing individual eloquats of technology within the organization and manage a few people and making sure that the lights stay on and uh, technology continues to roll forward without too unplanned uh, downtimes. That worked for a while, but within the last 10 years, there's been a huge revolution in what this role really means, in my opinion. There've been great examples, I think, within the industry of CIOs who've been able to leap above that old framework and be part of the conversation about where operationally the organization is headed. I personally feel that the CIO needs to be in all of the conversations around decisions about what we're gonna do operationally when they're big decisions whether that means acquisitions moving forward, whether that means pivoting as it relates to strategy, if there are large considerations around finance, all those things have a technical element to them. And it's being very easy to make mistakes as it relates to those topics. So for IT to be effective requires a shift. It's no longer enough to be in a task-driven world, stand up this system and make sure there's no trouble with it. It requires getting customer-focused and involved in the health system strategy. We often hear that strategic leaders need to better learn technology. But what about the idea of technology leaders learning strategy? What does that look like? For example, let's say we're going to acquire a new private practice or a new system. And operational folks get together. They meet with the CEO, maybe the chief operating officer. They meet with the outside entity and they shake hands or bump elbows, whatever it takes nowadays. Well, that's great. But what if what they agreed on doesn't correspond to something else that's been in the works for a year and a half? The example would be if you have uh, some sort of big implementation about to happen and there's a freeze between date A and, and date B. Well, if they've agreed that the go live is right in the center of that, then we've got a problem. And those are the kinds of, that's a, that's a small example, but those are the kinds of examples that I think without the CIO as part of the conversation, the operating folks really can get in trouble very quickly. 
Dr. Lee really highlighted the shortcomings for strategy and customer experiences without IT leadership involved. I'm sensing a bit of yin and yang here where parts of the organization have to complement each other in unexpected ways. This is especially true with new strategic approaches like AI. I will say the the recent past, our runway up till right now has been not a straight path. And there's been some disappointments. I remember looking at some of the AI technologies without naming names. There was one that was quite marketed, I'll say, a few years back. And I was disappointed in its actual capabilities. And they were, in my opinion, getting out ahead of where the technology currently was. In the industry, we, we call that vaporware sometimes. But in reality, they were attempting to apply something didn't uh, correspond to its capabilities. And if you do that, you're destined for, for disappointment. And so I've seen that. I've seen that uh, quite a bit. In terms of the CIO and working through the, some of these challenges and the AI piece, I would say it's critically important that the CIO identify as one of the roles to be a translator. Now, mm-hmm. stop and think about this for a second. You've got a clinical team and an operational team, your CEO, your chief operating officer, your chief financial officer. These individuals, these men and women did not arrive to their positions because they're dumb. These are smart people, right? They figured out the cognitive pieces of it. They understand their domain very well. They've learned to navigate politics in order to be able to arrive at their position. And ultimately, they're very enabled folks. But when it comes to technology, I've noticed that frequently their brains just shut off around this stuff. And it's because it is a complex field and there's a lot of nuance and it's not part of their day-to-day stuff that they do. And so I see part of the role of the CIO needs to be dedicated to taking all that complex stuff and distilling it down into a cohesive, digestible communication. Because ultimately, if they can understand the basic framework that we're talking about, they can be your ally in making a good decision about where to go. Because these are, again, these are smart people. But if they don't have that basic framework in place, that the CIO hasn't you know, gone out of their way to really translate that, that information into something that they can understand, then they really can't assist you in that process. So I, I spend a fair amount of my time thinking through how would I frame up all this stuff in a way where we can have a, a good conversation around this and I can benefit from their expertise applied to technology. So that vision completes our yin and yang. How can we possibly know what 8,000 pieces of consumer tech and 20,000 pieces of health tech are actually relevant for our patients and our organizations? Effective IT leadership understands health system strategy and can clearly discuss the technology needed to enable it. Speaking of clearly discussing these technologies, Dr. Milligan had some useful thoughts on strategizing towards artificial intelligence. In order for AI to function, you have to have a couple of things in place. First, you have to have data sets. You have to have robust data sets that are representative of your patient population that you ultimately wish wish to take action on moving forward. Second, you have to have some level of data science expertise. And I'll tell you, it's getting harder and harder, I would say, for community health systems to be able to leverage that. It's infrequent that they have internal expertise to apply true data science to large data sets. And community health systems are going to have to learn to partner with other systems. Moving forward, there's tons of applications for AI. I think it depends a little bit on how you define AI. In prior conversations, I I know that some folks were referencing AI when they're really talking about simple algorithms. When it's said and done. But AI is much more than that. He shared some specific thoughts on managing population health. 
it all goes back to the patient. AI is really about the ability of the computational system to be aware of its environment and then be able to take actions that further the goal, whatever that goal has been identified to be. And so it's really this whole idea of learning from what you're doing and learning from what you're doing, getting better and better at it. And so in my mind, the, some of the overt applications of this certainly are population health. You're on the hook for a year-over-year spend, PM, PM. And, and so how do you identify opportunities within that large cohort of patients where you can really dive in and identify where to spend your time. I also think about a lot of like simple applications, everything from identifying what are the, what are the most likely patients or circumstances to result in a no-show. Pretty obvious one. There's a lot to be gained there, I think, from an organization if you can identify simple aspects like that. And then, of course, there's more advanced applications for it as well that have to do with research that's super, super exciting. So when I think about some of the research that's out there around some of the blood-borne cancers, and you think about lymphomas, et cetera, and the application of CAR-T and where we're going with that, large data sets for the very first time are going to allow us to be able to make huge progress in terms of who would benefit and who wouldn't. So we've talked more about IT needing to understand strategies to be effective. We haven't really spoken overall, though, on how to understand strategy to begin with with all sides needing to learn to be more effective in this yin and yang cycle. What type of effort will it take for healthcare and technology leaders? Yeah, so I think it's critically important that if you're going to shift your career in a new direction, that you do an honest self-assessment that allows you to understand where your strengths and weaknesses are. And what I found is that successfully doing that is pretty uncommon. And I think part of it has to do with, the, at least from a medical perspective, if you're a physician and come at it from that angle. I've talked to a lot of my friends about my journey and about their different journeys who've done different things. And it's rare that a physician is able to think through what do they not do well and really hone in on that and call that out. And then once you've identified that, then take action to do something about it. Because everybody who's in the conversation has something they do really well and something they're probably not very good at. So if you can identify that, and sometimes the best way to do that is to ask your closest associates, people who you've uh, interacted with before, and you'll give you honest feedback. Dr. Lee told us a story about this. I'll give you one example for me. So when I um, moved into the CIO role almost two years now, two years ago now, I, I recognized that I hadn't spent a lot of my time dedicated to security. And obviously, that's that's one of the big one of the big areas to focus on. I really need to understand that, and I, I felt a a deep responsibility to the organization to make sure I understood it, that I could be confident that I that we have in place a system that can effectively thwart potential attacks. And so I, I took that as a mandate that I need to understand this. Reading, watching videos, talking to my security team, talking to outside experts. I was able to work with a guy named Bill Russell, who is a friend of mine, to put together a virtual collaboration, I'll say with two other health systems, around what we're doing from a security perspective and what they're doing. And so it's those kinds of things where if you can just honestly assess where you bring it and really where you don't, and then take some sort of action to get to a better spot, I think then you'll be able to set a course where you want to go. I think that the risk, the big risk is that you assume that you either know it better than you do or that it won't become an issue for you moving forward. Those two risks or those two assumptions, I think, are are fraught with error. To sum it all up, No matter where you are in the organization, being customer-focused means being dedicated to constantly learning. 
This means breaking outside of your comfort zone and diving into strategy or technology and expanding from there. Speaking of being obsessed with learning. I was identified as the doctor nerd in our group. That's Dr. John Lee. Dr. John is SVP and Chief Medical Informatics Officer at the Allegheny Health Network. He also started out as a physician. And so when we implemented an electronic system in our ED, I was a natural choice to to dive in. And I probably dove in a little bit deeper than they thought I would dive. And I got really down deep in the weeds and helped with configuration and whatnot. So that gave me a, a very deep understanding of how these systems work or don't work. Why was Dr. John so obsessed with the ins and outs of their electronic system? I remember being an emergen- a young emergency physician back in 99 when IOMs to Air as Human uh, report came out. And being a relatively fresh physician and being, I would say that in retrospect, fairly typically overly arrogant, I thought the, the report was a bunch of hogwash. And it was just a conspiracy to try to, to buttress trial lawyers and suing physicians. But then fast forward, as I've done some of my administrative time, and I started actually looking at some of the systematic things that occurred in our system as, once I got to my role as a CMIO, I realized, and then I actually went back and read the report, that the title is very appropriate. They were talking about bad doctors doing bad things. They were talking about good doctors and nurses and other healthcare workers doing what they could, but unfortunately and inevitably making mistakes because they are human. And that's what I think led me to what is my obsession on how I approach my job now, is to really solve that equation where you have all this information out there You have these people who need this information to to, to deliver care or even be a patient. And there's this gap in between that that stuff is not flowing. Dr. John had gone from data doubter to data obsessed. And in that journey, he identified major gaps in how organizations would employ technologies. I've probably said it before on this podcast. The future is here. It's just not evenly distributed. That quote's from William Gibson for all you cyberpunk fans out there. Dr. John expanded on why addressing these gaps is so important. So I would say that a meaningful use in the High Tech Act is a grand strategic example of the technical gap, where theoretically, if you digitize stuff, then you make it that data and information more fluid and able to be delivered to the people who need it. But we all know that did not happen the way that we had fully intended. And on a more sort of mundane level, an example that I often use is drug interactions and uh, specific and particularly heparin and aspirin. Heparin causes bleeding. Aspirin causes bleeding. When you give them together, up pops an alert that says, hey, both of these drugs cause bleeding. Do you really want to give these together? If I'm a cardiologist and and I'm taking care of a, a heart attack patient, of course, I don't want to see that alert. I, that, that synergy between those two medications is what I want. So there, you have this technology and the information and the data saying, yes, these two medications theoretically do cause bleeding, but in certain situations, you do not, or actually in most situations, you do not want to actually fire that. But you want to be more nuanced about it rather than having it just be a binary fire or not fire decision. Great point. In healthcare, where lives are at stake, 
All it takes is one exception for it not to be a clear binary decision. And so what you need to start doing is infusing things like, has the patient's hemoglobin gone down? What's the patient's platelet count? Are you a cardiologist? Is the patient a, a heart attack patient? Is the patient's primary diagnosis a gastrointestinal bleed? And then you start infusing all sorts of additional data features into this, and it no longer is this binary on or off. It's, it is an important interaction, but you have to consider all these other things. And most systems now have not been able to incorporate that nuanced line of logic. And when you start pulling all that stuff in, that is that ends up being data science. That's essentially what we're talking about with artificial intelligence, That so that the system knows that the patient is coming in with a heart attack. The person who's ordering it is a cardiologist. I do not want to fire this alert to this provider because the other data surrounding this clinical situation warrants that even though the, this is a drug interaction, it's not something that is appropriate to make somebody else aware about. And so then you multiply that out times, I don't know how many millions or billions of other similar sorts of decisions and data points that are exist in all of our healthcare systems. That's the problem that we're trying to solve. That's where the technology has to be uh, bridged with how things actually work in the real world, the piece of it. And I think ultimately data science and artificial intelligence is going to be the, the solution to that. Okay, so I think I'm starting to understand. If we're able to bridge the socio-technical gap, then we can start delivering the nuanced care that our patients deserve. Providing the nuance needed for a personalized approach is a perfect North Star. However, that does beg a question. How do we get the data that enables this level of nuance? I think there, there are two elements that, I think just from a basic uh, housekeeping perspective, you have to have a single place to house this. You have to have some sort of data warehouse. Or you can't be looking in multiple places to, to find the data that you need to power these, these tools. The second element, I think, is that the data that we have in healthcare is so unbelievably, there's all sorts of crap in our healthcare data that really is not only irrelevant, but also leads to incorrect conclusions. A perfect example of that is something called the Glasgow Coma Scale and the SOFA score. The Glasgow Coma Scale is a measure of how alert you are as a person. And then there's that is one of the features that contributes to something called a SOFA score, which is a summation of how sick you are as a patient. And this came up relatively recently as we were going through some of the COVID crisis. As we were doing this calculation of the Glasgow Coma Scale and feeding into the SOFA score, we realized that a lot of patients were getting Glasgow Coma Scales of three, which is the lowest score that you could get. But that was because the, the patients were paralyzed and sedated because they were on a ventilator. The glass and is not a ref, true reflection of the patient's neurologic status. So there's patients who are who've been on ventilators for any number of days or even weeks who have Glasgow coma scares of, of three, and that unnaturally suppresses the SOFA score. So that dirtiness in the data exists all over the place, and it also includes things like a, a hot topic is having patient remote monitoring at home, but. Anybody who knows anything at, at the hospital knows that the heart rate on a monitor, even in the hospital, has all sorts of variables and artifact, and it's entirely unreliable unless you fold that into 
some clinical relevance and an understanding of, as a nurse, I see the monitor going like this. That means that's all artifact. Now, if it goes like this, but the patient is comatose and they have a history of ventricular fibrillation, then this thing means that the patient's about to die. So that sort of understanding and clinical context that is missing in a lot of the data that we receive that would feed into these data science models. And what you have to do is you have to actually clean the data so that when you're calculating the SOFA score, you exclude all the Glasgow coma scales after the patient got sedated and paralyzed, or that you do some sort of pattern recognition and join that with if the if, it go, if the if the heart rate is going like this and the patient is walking around, then no, the patient is not in ventricular fibrillation. And it's that sort of cleaning that needs to be done to make those sorts of data all that much more powerful for feeding into these engines and algorithms. And the analogy that I've been using a lot is, I think uh, many of us have heard the adage now, data is the new oil, okay? So the problem is that we have like really bad crude oil right now. Nobody would think of taking crude oil and dumping it in your car and expecting it to run. What we need is a refining process. You take that crude oil, send it to the refinery, kerosene, jet fuel, all sorts of tar, and now another product is gasoline, which then gets shipped out. And that is something that you can actually use in cars. And that sort of process is what we need to do. I'll repeat that. Data is the new oil, but it takes refinement and processing to make it usable. If bridging this sociotechnical gap and providing patients with nuanced care is the goal, how do we get there? Dr. John reflected on his transition into Allegheny Health Network and how he got started. Well, I think what, what I've done is, in large part, the, the time that I've spent here so far has been just listening and hearing what, where, they, where are the gaps, at least heuristically from the perspective of the administration or the end, uh, clinical end users. And then people in our profession can help out is that we can take those gaps, those places where there are deficiencies and think up technical solutions to bridge those gaps. So that if there is a problem with a particular clinical outcome, then think up some sort of decision support tool that is elegant that people would actually use and understand that actually is helpful for them rather than just another pop-up that that, that is bothering their workflow, which is a, a very common phenomenon. I think one of the stories that came about from my previous organization is that we had this thing in, in our system called a preference list. And it was built by an analyst when we went live. And the very minute that we went live and I was watching a physician use it, I realized that it was built wrong. It was built incorrectly. It was built technically correct, but there was all sorts of content in there that was missing. In particular, just even changing something, a display text for a physician for a particular order is, I realized was going to be tremendously helpful. So that day, I just rebuilt all the preference lists on my own because I knew what a physician would want to see. And it took me, I was laborious, but it, it wasn't an overwhelming amount of work. And that piece of, of engineering and build, it still exists to this day. And the thing is that my colleagues, most of them don't even know that I did that. And that's the way that these 
is how we should approach these systems that the good stuff that is the good stuff should be completely transparent to the end user that it is a good, something that's good. It should be just there and it should match with what, how they think and approach their workflow. Let's bridge between Dr. Lee Milligan and Dr. John Lee. Dr. Lee Milligan pointed that the customer isn't just the patient, it's everyone who influences the patient. With the story Dr. John just told, the importance of being customer-centric is abundantly clear. Those changes allowed physicians a better experience, and this results in better care for patients. So far, though, we've been talking about how single systems impact the patient experience. Our care is much more complex than that. What happens when these systems need to work together? So it's a lot, and just what we need more acronyms. You're hearing from Ann Goldman. Anne is currently the lead digital health strategy executive for Cerner, which is a major player in electronic medical records. When we were talking to her, she was at MultiCare, a health system in Washington focused on interoperability. So FHIR is just really HL7 over JSON. And the FHIR resources in the past few years have been become more sophisticated and more developed so that we actually can use them. So just to break out, because MultiCare, the organization that where I'm employed, we are part of Care and Blue Button, but we're also part of DaVinci. And they are two separate things, though they are very much interrelated in many ways. And they both do have the backing of um, CMS and other parts of the federal government. So Karen is more consumer focused. And that's Karen with a C, C-A-R-I-N. And that is more about you as a consumer having access to your healthcare information, whether it be a, a payer or a provider. Okay, so that is a lot of acronyms, but don't be scared. Complex things are just collections of simple things. Solve them one at a time, and eventually things start working out. I do believe we are finally going to be able to take advantage of all this investment. But that doesn't mean that it'll just happen for you as an organization. There's still a significant amount of lift on the organization side. But there's a couple things that have played into this. Just I think there's been uh, just early adopters have had success. Just a normal kind of, I say, maturity curve of any technology. But also I believe that we have engaged leadership on it, but the big, the, I think another factor here is the big technology players that healthcare organizations are also investing in this quite heavily and they're very much want to see it succeed. And so it, they gives you a jump start as an organization to be able to in, invest in this rather than building, building it yourself. That's why I think it's, that's why I think we're right to actually make this happen. That's great, but how do we actually know when we're achieving success? This is where the government is way ahead of everyone else. So CMS has had great results with this and now is mandating it, highly suggesting it now, we'll mandate it later for everyone to follow suit. So that is our early adopter. In terms of what is a measure here, the instantaneous nature of being able to exchange um, information through fire, that is the success in itself. How we're able to respond to errors, whether it would, with any of these use cases, gaps in coverage, and I'm gonna name the three later on, but membership or even our med recon, which we're currently in our auditing phase, the, we, the time saved in the error reconciliation alone is a very good metric for success. Currently, we are in the med reconciliation post-discharge use case. This is a great use case, by the way. Medical reconciliation means identifying all medications that a patient is taking, how often, and how much. 
It's a process that can take up to 45 days. Remember those pains that Dr. John was discussing when certain drugs interact? Doing this quickly helps prevent that. And really quickly, just going through the steps. First, you have, of course, the discharge, right? And then you have the discharge medication list, right? And then you need to exchange this medication list with the actual provider who is, and when I provider, not the provider who perhaps did your surgery or, or who wrote your medication prescriptions in the hospital, but your provider that you do the 30-day follow-up with. And then you need to also have these medications listed in the EMR for that 30-day follow-up. And then there has to be the reconciliation and there has to be the attestation of that reconciliation. And that attestation is the point that part that we're auditing right now is part of Da Vinci because the attestation is not necessarily charged. How do you drop that you've done the attestation in the provider office? That's why we are had to actually augment Fire with some work in Clarity, which is the epic relational database for those who might not know. Again, don't be scared of complexity one step at a time. That is our first use case that we are underway. We started with Regents and what the med reconciliation post-discharge. So being able, once you leave the hospital, you're discharged from the hospital, the medicines that are prescribed to you and the medicines that you are taking when you have that follow-up visit with your primary care or your specialist in the office, that is a measure on a lot of value-based contracts. To go from a process of up to 45 days to happening upon discharge, that's a major move. How does this impact the patient? Particularly with our seniors who, um, I, I gotta tell you, I worked in pharma a long time and I am still, I am confused on my orders with medication when I've left the hospital. So I can only imagine for our seniors how difficult this might be as well as anybody else. Having that true on the medications, making sure you're taking them correctly, there's not any contraindications and so forth. It's very important and that's why it's a measure for value-based care. And getting this information from the payers to the provider on a timely basis within that 30 days is just it's just been really challenging. And it's been a manual process in the past. So that is the piece that we have focused on first. And it was one of the first use cases actually out of DaVinci. So that is the use case that we are working on right now. And how did we enable it? We have an API gateway. We do not actually have, we are standing up our fire server actually through Azure. They have been wonderful partners with us and fire as a service is something that they offer. You can either manage it yourself or have them manage it. We're still going back and forth on that. So we are working not just to receive this data, but also push the data back to the payer as well to make sure that the attestation is done, not just with the clarity file to say that we've attested, but also the information through fire. Remember when I said not to be scared of complex systems? The real roadblocks in healthcare are when people are satisfied with the status quo. But the theme of this podcast is to create or demand a better future within healthcare. So, how do you overcome the pushback when it comes to these types of efforts? I think the pushback is we have a process now that works, even though for all intents and purposes, it might as well be broken because of the time lag. If you're so used to doing things and you just accept that time lag, that 45-day window to receive information from the payer and what that means to a patient in terms of finding an actual per day, per dollar ROI if we actually invested in the technology, that's really got us over the hump. We're still just starting to see the benefit of that. But I'll tell you, we had a team of FTEs that just babysat 
and claimed files and waited for files from the payer. That team is now doing other things. So in terms of FTE hours for the ROI, we had a team of five people. So if you think about what that means for the organization, that technology has now replaced some of this man auditing that they have done, um, just sitting around waiting for files, calling to see why haven't you sent the files, the files are wrong. That in itself is starting to prove out the measure we had, which was the FTE hour spend on doing this work, as well as how much a misattribution was costing us in write-offs for perhaps a member that acquired services that wasn't attributed to us. We would write that down as an organization because they're seeking care. That is the business we're in. We are going to give them the care, but they weren't, they weren't attrib- they attributed life to us. So far... We've gotten deep perspectives on bridging the patient experience, patient care, and strategy, all to health IT. As we just heard from Anne, learning your organization's strategic language is especially important. While we're focused on saving and improving lives, we often have to discuss in the context of investments and returns. Still, we like thinking beyond that. I wish they could see the power of what we're talking about. I wish that they fully understood this ubiquity of knowledge that could exist around the world and the lives that could be saved. The, I just, I'm really passionate about how important data is in creating knowledge and how important that knowledge is for caring for people around the world. That's Mark Probst. Mark used to be Chief Information Officer at Intermountain Healthcare. He's now CIO at LK. As a health IT leader, Mark doesn't just focus on specific health systems populations. He's focused on the role that data plays in addressing global health issues. He shared his thoughts on this. Wow. I mean, that, that, to try and prioritize that really is trying to get into the heads of people and what's most important to them. To a diabetic, having good information about glucose levels and how they're living their lives and the you know, activity that they're involved in That's the most important use of data. To somebody with heart disease, some of the data is the same, their activity and those kind of things, but then there's very specific data important to them. I remember giving a a talk where I was what I, the statement I ultimately made because I was focused in that particular discussion around the standards and the value of standards in healthcare. And my point was there's huge disparity around the world in providing healthcare. And a lot of that, there's a lot of reasons for that disparity. But if we could standardize data and understand data, we could share knowledge, right? So if we can now have data that means the same thing in Kenya as it means in India, as it means in China, as it means in the United States, then the knowledge that's starting to get created in each of these locations could be shared because now it's meaningful in each of those different areas. And the point I I got to in that particular talk was that there are literally hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars that could be saved and tens, if not hundreds of millions of lives that could be saved if we could get to those standards and share that knowledge across the world. And then we could start to see some of those disparities go away. Because it's not necessarily the medical devices, although they're important, but it's really that knowledge that's going to save the lives. So it's a long way around to your answer, Chris, 
but it's really dependent on the individual and what's most important to them, or population, I guess, and what's most important to them. Still, again, I've been repeating myself. Complex things are a series of smaller things. In this case, even though we're thinking globally, we have to act locally. So where we work, how should we view leadership's role in making healthcare work for our patients? Should this be entirely top-down? Listen, leadership's still important, and that doesn't necessarily mean top-down, but leadership is still important. And some of these, I, if you're dealing in a clinical situation, you're a clinician, you're dealing in the hospital or in a clinic, you're busy. It's not that you don't want to do these things, you're just busy. And so anything that's new, even if it's obviously good, it's still difficult to change your workflow or change the activities that you're doing. So I do think there is a top visionary role to be played in what we're trying to do with data and AI and whatever it is in terms of healthcare. So I, I do think there is a top-down aspect of this. What's interesting, though, is if you get the visionary, if you get the leadership, you start pushing these things, the people that are now seeing the benefits they become very supportive, right? They become advocates for this. They become very excited about it. And, and then they can help go bottoms up and really start push new ideas, new things that can be done. I think at the beginning it is, there is a leadership top-down responsibility there. And when it comes to addressing these broad issues, can there be a partnership between clinicians, IT, and marketing? And how good is that for the patient? And how good is that for the health system? And I'm not talking Intermountain, I'm talking about the industry itself or everyone involved with health. Just think if, if we can, as we, no, not if, as we become better at this, how many lives we can save and how much money we can save out of a very taxed system. But yeah, and when I started Intermountain and I saw Terry out there, I remember his help in Homer Warner. I actually knew Homer. Homer Warner was a cardiologist who pioneered many medical informatics technologies. He died about six years ago and it was really a sad day, but he was just as great as can be right up until the time that he died. But we had this clinical data because that's what Homer was a physician and that's what you could collect at the time. But like you said, marketing's got access to all this metadata and social media data and all these other data sources that combine. And, and that's where a lot of the proactive work can be done. We can see someone has a proclivity toward diabetes, but we can also then look at social media and say, well, hope you enjoyed that Whopper and milkshake. <laughs> and maybe we can do more of that. But the, the whole idea of what we're doing clinically and what we're trying to do, I hate to use the term marketing, but that's where the, the activity is that we're doing the outreach and those kind of things. And where we're bringing that data together, the power is just amazing. It helps to know that there's support from an outreach perspective. When it's focused on getting people to make healthy decisions, marketing actually isn't a dirty word. What about getting buy-in from the clinical side of the house? This is my experience, but in my experience, it was showing them the value of what we were doing, like advanced decision support. When you came out, when we came out with decision support, it was this from the physicians. We don't want that. It's cookbook medicine. You're telling me how to do my job. And we had to do two things. One was show them, no, we are just giving you some guidelines, some edges that we want you to stay within and it'll help you. And we had to prove that to them by, by staying within those guidelines. 
they were doing a better job. So we not only had to show them the data on how to improve their care, but we had to show them that they were improving their care by using those tools and those guidelines. So I think extending that to today to, okay, let us show you what we're doing with this data and, and together, how we're working together to improve the care that the patients you have are getting. Clinicians are one, quite competitive. And so when they have data that they can see how they compare to their um, peers, that's really helpful to them. And the other thing that they are is they truly care about their patients. And again, when you show them that the things that they're doing, the things that we're doing together with data is actually improving the lives of the people that they deal with, yeah, they come around pretty quickly. Ultimately, what's the corporate driver that's going to enable data and care on this scale? Is it value-based care that's going to push us in that direction? Or is it competition to push us there because we don't want to lose? Or is it old-fashioned fee-for-service revenue? All three of the examples that you just outlined are financially based. And clearly, as the good sister said, no money, no mission. And that still drives a lot of our thinking. So I think from a corporate perspective, and this is, I'm not being judgmental here at all because I do believe in no money, no mission. And if you can't, if you can't sustain the system, it's going to fall apart. Corporately, it is financial. And I do think value-based care is the thing that's incentivizing those corporate leaders to go that direction maybe quicker than they were. Fee-for-service was pretty, it was a different kind of mechanism. And, and you made money just because of fee-for-service. Value-based care is putting new pressures on the system and saying, no, we want you to save money. And by the way, if you save money, if you keep people healthier, you're going to make more money. And that's a good thing, right? That's incentivizing the system correctly. So I think value-based care has a lot to do with it. If you're a clinician, if you get out of the corporate suite, you now they still care about money because of the what I just outlined. But they also really are close to the patients and they want people to be better. And so that's the incentive there. But yeah, what's driving it, I think, is value-based care, population health. Don't lose focus. You might drift off to thinking about a software system that's going awry or why an outreach campaign's numbers are off. These are important, but only in service of something greater. We shared these stories to show that even at the highest levels, there are people who remain focused on the patient through and through. Lives depend on how fast information flows. Well-being depends on the quality of outreach and engagement that people have. It's not about systems. It's about enabling the right choices at people's most critical moments. Don't lose focus. Thanks again for tuning into Hello Healthcare. If you like what you heard, we appreciate a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. You and your feedback fuel us. This conversation is brought to you by Actium Health. To get the latest on what these healthcare leaders are saying, subscribe to our newsletter on hellohealthcare.com or join us for our weekly sessions on LinkedIn. Thanks. And when we see you next time, hello. Hello.